Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Carol Mahoney. Carol is the founder of Unbound Growth. She's also the founder of a movement called Not About Me, which is um, remembering fabulous friend of both of us, Bob Giamanco. And in fact, Carol is running a scholarship to get more women to be successful in sales. And today we're going to be looking at why sales is something that you do with somebody. It's not something you do to them. We're going to look at the blind spots that come about because people fall into the trap of trying to do sales, to convince, to persuade, instead of having the customer persuade themselves. And what do you have to do in order to really put them under pressure and become properly sleazy and sell out of integrity instead of within it? So we're going to explore all of this. We're going to look at the blind spots. One of my favorites is the ability to overestimate our strengths and underestimate our weakness. And there's also um, a very similar equivalence, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people who know bugger all about things insist on proving they know so little by opening their mouths. And so we're going to discuss all of this, but let's start. Carol, welcome. And would you mind giving us about a minute on your background and what qualifies you to chew the fat with me? Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. I think the thing that qualifies me is that we share that same sarcasticness. So that's my first thought. But as far as this particular topic, honestly, I converted to sales. I call it converting to the dark side. I was a marketer at heart. I studied marketing. I ran a marketing agency. And what I found was happening both within my own business and with my clients is that we either weren't closing the deals or we were working with customers that weren't the best fits for us, but we had to take them because we needed the money. And this was the age of, you know, the dawning of the internet, so to speak, right? This was 2007, SEO had been born, pay-per-click, and, and everyone thought that everyone's going to shift everything online. We're not going to need salespeople. I was the head of that movement. Like, I wanted to make salespeople obsolete because I hated the pushy, slimy, sleazy, salesy sales tactics that buyers despise, but we had to put up with for so long to get things done. And lo and behold, what I found was that even with the internet, we still need a human being to help us to make decisions. We still need salespeople. And so I decided rather than make them obsolete, I'm going to transform them, starting with myself. And so I went through the journey of hiring a sales coach and working through my own sales beliefs and mindsets that were getting in the way. And then understanding the psychology of how we make decisions and buy and what we value as, as buyers and putting those two things together to devise programs that are based on science and psychology and neuroscience and sociology and data about what makes a good salesperson to create predictable programs because the 50% success rate that we're seeing in sales today, despite the $70 billion in training and technology that we spend, obviously isn't working anymore. And so I've done the work, I've done the research, I've tested on my clients, I've worked with Harvard Business School and implementing these kinds of techniques with their students in sales. And what we're seeing is not only a transformation of results, but a transformation in the perception of what sales is and, and reducing that negative perception from pushy, slimy, sleazy to trusted advisor, which is this myth that we all chase. The challenge, I think, is it starts with the mindset of the seller. We are not self-aware and we don't understand the impact we have on others. 
then chances are we're going to struggle to find common ground, let alone not blunder our way through valuable prospect lists yes. and burn through lots of perfectly viable opportunities. So talk to me about mindset. Let's start with that. The science and the research all tell us that how we think about something, this, is, this, this can be related to uh, the theory of reasoned action and planned behavior. How we think influences what we do, which then becomes our results. And you can see my, I have this bookshelf behind me of almost every sales book that's just been about written on the subject, tried it and tested it. And like so many others who chase after the next process and methodology and tactic and hack and trick to get more sales in, they don't understand why does this work not for me? Why, what's getting in my way? And what they don't realize is that's their mindset towards sales and what sales is. And even in the selling actions itself, that is getting in their way. It's why we don't do the things that we know that we should do and can do in the moment that we should do them, right? Like we know we should eat our vegetables and exercise, but do we? No. Nah. <laughs> and so this Look is what's me. happening in sales, right? Like we, we keep perpetuating the same things that happened before, right? Like, you know, one of the ways that we learn is by modeling the behaviors of others that we see as successful. And unfortunately, the, the models that we're shown as successful are the Grant Cardones of the world, right? That have the private jets and they're ripping people off and all of these things, that's what we see as successful. And so we force ourselves to do that, to do the convincing, the persuading, the manipulating, instead of looking at sales as a collaboration with our buyers, as a problem solving exercise with them. That's one of the major mindset shifts, but there are actually six very specific mindsets that impact us in our selling motions, in our behaviors that we Tell do. Tell me about them. So uh, this, there are six that I measure, uh, and I use objective management group data for this, where they've measured 2.2 million sales professionals on 21 competencies and, and found that these six mindsets impact all of those skills. So the first and the most common one is whether or not we have supportive beliefs in sales. So a belief, for example, like if someone thinks it over, they're going to eventually buy from me is not a supportive belief, right? We have all of these thoughts that get in our way and they're specific ones in sales. The other one that's the one of the most common ones, which is very, very human, is our own need for approval, right? How people see us, do they like us? And we believe that if people like us and see us as smart and intelligent, that they'll buy from us, except our worry about what they think about us gets in the way of us asking those tough, challenging questions that will get buyers to think differently about their problems because we don't want to upset them. Then there's the ability to regulate and manage our emotions in the moment, right? Sellers hear buying signals. They're interested in the product and they suddenly jump into pitch mode or they hear objections and tough questions and they're thinking in their head, how am I going to answer this? How do I defend my position? And because they're not in that present moment with them, they're missing things that they should be seeing and asking. And because of that, they're not building collaboration and trust with them. They're just listening long enough to do what they need to do, to get what they want out of it. Another one that's very common is how, I call it the how we buy is how we sell dynamic or a supportive buy cycle as it's named. If you're someone who likes to shop around, has to get the best price, ask everybody and everybody what they think about your decision, you delay your decisions because of it, then you're going to be more likely to empathize with a buyer who wants to do the same thing. You want to think this over, you want to do your due diligence to the nth degree, I get it. I would do the same thing if I were you. And so they they don't handle or work through these delays and these put-offs. It's like buyer empathy. 
Yeah, it's a bad buyer empathy, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. it's the kind that is not helping your buyers and it's not helping you either, right? You're, you're falling into rescuing, you're not helping. Exactly. Because you haven't got permission. Exactly, yes. And then also, you know, these all of these play in with each other as well. And then of course, there's things like comfort discussing money, which <laughs> none of us are comfortable discussing money for the most part, right? Like we were, most of us were raised that you don't talk about what things cost or what you make. So when you get into a conversation to talk about value and the cost of consequences of not taking action, those are hard conversations to have if you can't talk comfortably and confidently about money with people. And, you know, our buyers have the same issues. So if we're struggling with it, how are we going to ever help them with it? And then, of course, there's things like being able to handle rejection. We face rejection daily in our lives, but in sales even more so. It's how do you react to it? Do you let it get you down? Does it wipe you out? Or is it one of those where it's like, okay, oh, well, moving on to the next one. Or when you hear no, do you just take it at face value or will you dig even deeper? These are all very specific beliefs and mindsets that we carry with us every day. But when we get into sales conversation, will absolutely cripple us. Those are very common. I see them all the time. And I'd be very curious to see the data to back it up because every one of those is a key issue. What we also have is a lack of willingness to push back against our own organization. Because I think the biggest problem that most salespeople face is the internal sell and the internal resistance or the internal competition. What possible logic is there when it's already tough enough as it is to try and pit your salespeople against one another instead Mm -hmm. of having them cooperate and share insight and information and maybe cross-refer or say, Carol, you know, um, I don't really get on with this one, but I think you're going to have a much better chemistry. All yours. It just seems terribly stupid. I see it every day where companies create the very problems that they seek to solve right? So the competition, right? Why don't we have a good culture? Why don't we have team camaraderie? Why don't we have collaboration? Why don't we have diverse teams? But you set up this culture where, you know, I I work with one company where every Tuesday, the, the lead roster happens, right? And so it's a race to the to the email to see who can grab the quick the best leads the fastest and people are getting up at like three o'clock in the morning <laughs> in order for them to get the best leads for themselves or they create these end of month tactics right use discounts to create urgency and then they wonder why they have customer churn later on or why deals don't happen or why they're turning off buyers or they don't train and coach them they kind of like all right go ahead figure it out on your own but we need you to start performing right now like they're creating the same problems that they need to solve for because of the decisions they make right so in effect what they're doing is they're then creating the conditions mm-hmm. where salespeople have to in order to keep their jobs and not put get put on a pip or get fired and if significance is so uh, strong for them getting their manager's approval or being top of the leaderboard, then they're being asked to do things like discount, fireside sales, uh, or uh, fire sales, pulling deals forward, offering. I was speaking to a client about a month ago, and because they were having a really, really tough time, they were being asked to, instead of doing a three-year deal or a five-year deal, to commit for manufactured goods, 10-year deals. (laughs) It's just creating a monster 
Because with inflation, that must be what sort of CFO would drive the numbers so badly that you'd be willing to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about creating buying obstacles. It's quite frightening. What seems to happen is we, we create the conditions to make life harder for our reps. And don't even realize it. That's the problem is, is that they think that they're helping, but they're actually hurting. And a lot of it comes from the way that they make decisions, right? They're not using data to drive the decisions. They're not looking at the psychology and how this is going to impact their people. They're not actually even getting feedback from their people for the most part. I was coaching a manager just yesterday and he was trying to figure out how to get better one-to-ones and relationships with his team. And the way that he meets with his team members is they have a once a week, one hour pipeline review every week where he digs into this, that, and the next thing and is poking holes and everything and telling them what they're doing wrong, but not giving them the coaching to develop the skills to do it the right way. And so when I said to him, well, what if you started your one-to-ones with, what is it that you'd like to work on in our time together? And he couldn't wrap his head around it. He's like, well, how am I going to get what I need and want if I do that? Well, this is a really interesting paradox because as I've got older and I hope a fraction wiser, I've realized that to get trust, you have to give trust first. Invite To encourage others to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. If you want people to change, you have to change first. And instead of looking for what you have in difference, you need to start looking for what we have in common because mm-hmm. you cannot build bridges on yeah, where there is no common ground. So given that you and I've been around a while and I'm obviously not suggesting you're anywhere near Neolithic or Paleolithic as me, but in all of your years, have you ever seen so much short-term thinking and selfish short-term greed getting in the way of genuine progress? Yes, all the time, unfortunately. I mean, you know, we're, we're in let's just say we're we're in a or going into a global recession right now this isn't the first time that this has happened and, and this is what happens when we start to feel financial pressures and changes in circumstances it's what is your go to and what is your natural reaction to that as a leader is it to cut is it to invest is and it's those decisions that then get carried down and so i've seen this happen in the last two recessions that we've had yes i've been around that long where the fear takes over Yeah. So, so then this would be my third. So I'm about halfway there, but that is is what happens is that when circumstances change and we allow the fear to take over at every level and organization and and aspect of our lives, those are not the best decisions that we're making. We're because we're making them out of fear. And that's when I see this, this reflecting on self happens, right? Like that's why I wear this t-shirt that everybody wonders why the, the saying is upside down on it, because we need to have that constant reminder that it, if we focus on the other person, the individual and not ourselves, we get to see a lot more clearly about what's going to be important. So my Give t-shirt, those on can't see it, yes. <laughs> Uh, but if you go to my website at Unbound Growth, uh, you'll be able to, to get the T-shirt yourself there. And we donate the proceeds to the Barbara Guillamanco Fund for more women in sales. But it's an upside down, all capital letters, and it says not about me. And the reason that it's upside down so that the person wearing the shirt can look down and be reminded of the fact 
that the conversation, the, the intention needs to be other focused and not about themselves. Because it's natural for us to think about the what's in it for me first. We need that reminder. So define how, how would you define sales and selling? What is it? What, what is it we do or meant I, to do? I define sales and I define selling not as something that we do to other people. I mean, how many people have said, I'm sold on the idea and been like happy about it, or you sold me. And it's it's never a good connotation to be sold to or sold at. I instead look at sales as something that we do with others. It's not something we control. It is something that we guide. It is something that we take a part of. It is a conversation and a conversation is always two ways. That is what sales is. I honestly believe that sales can make the world a better place because it is the thing that connects problems and solutions together. And isn't that how we make everything better? But it doesn't happen if we don't have trust, if we don't have the ability to build and portray and communicate trust. And the way that sellers are acting today does not do that. So if we're seeing this deficit of trust, Mm -hmm. um, this clearly represents a massive opportunity for those people who can keep their buyer's amygdala calm, who can consistently and reliably show up and meet or exceed expectation, make the customer the hero in the journey instead of themselves, and actually listen to what the customer needs to solve. That sounds like quite a simple way of differentiating in a very noisy, crowded, price-sensitive market where people will pay a premium for that, won't they? And they do. So there's this thing called the Ikea effect that was studied by Harvard several years ago. And most people I think are familiar with Ikea, you know, the Swedish manufacturer where you go and you get the furniture and you put it together yourself. Well, what they found through this study is that people were willing to pay more for something they put together themselves than something that was put together for them by an expert. And so what they concluded from this is that when we collaborate with others, where they have a part, they have a skin in the game, they have a voice in the creation of something, then they will place more value on that than they would if, you know, we come in with our perfect product and pitch and solution and say, this is exactly what you need. They have a hard time wrapping their head around the value of that. And so by asking collaborative questions and collaborating with our buyers, meeting them where they are in their process, we're creating more value in how we sell, not just what we sell. One of my mentors, Brian Sullivan, said, you've got to get their fingerprints all over it. The more their fingerprints are over it, the more they feel they own it. People don't argue with their own information. And if you give them the brushes and the canvas and the paints and say, paint me your picture, tell me your story. And one of my favorite examples of this is a genuine master at this process, a guy called Bob Mester. And Bob apprenticed with W. Edwards Deming, who created Kaizen and the Toyota system over in Japan, and then uh, latterly with three others, including Clay Christensen. And he does these jobs to be done interviews. Mm-hmm. And the really important moment, he says, is the moment of purchase. It's at this moment, why did you buy this particular product, given all the other things you could have been doing? Mm-hmm. And then working backwards from there to the moment where they realized they had a problem. Now, typically about 10 interviews is enough with customers 
And he typically picks customers who've recently switched to buy the product to try and understand what unmet need they are trying to satisfy. He also speaks to customers who abuse the product and use it in unusual ways because that opens up entirely new markets of non-customers. Mm. Now, we spend so much energy trying to go out and beat ourselves to, you know, to pound the phones and email people to death. You know, there are 1.2 quadrillion emails delivered every year, most of which get bounced. Um, there are 4.3 quadrillion digital adverts that get that one click. Yeah. What the noise? Our customers are deaf to hearing anything that you have to say. Yeah, we're training them to ignore us with all of the impersonal cadences and automations and spam. Like that's what we're doing. We're training them to ignore us. LinkedIn did a survey and found that 90% of executives ignore impersonal and automated messages. And I was like, 90%, who are these 10% of people that are paying attention to it? So why are we why are we training our buyers to ignore us when cost of customer acquisition is going through the roof, margins are shrinking, and the way that we're selling with our, our buyers and the buying experience that we're creating from the onset is what's setting it up for us to have either retention, expansion, or churn later on. We focus on customer experience, but why are we only focusing on that after they've given us money when the thing that has the biggest impact is before they give us money? The thing that determines whether they give us money or not is the experience they have in buying something. That journey is an absolute goldmine of opportunity. If you slow down and mm -hmm. you move your focus from the short to the medium and long term. Mm -hmm. And if I've got six to 36 months to develop multiple relationships within an account, really understand what they're trying to accomplish without ever once trying to pitch them anything, without ever once self-referencing, without ever once trying to tell them about how much they need to buy my stuff because I've got to hit my quota. And I spend my time focused on a handful of accounts working with a handful of special forces partners who already have hot relationships with my target accounts, and I can get hand-delivered for next to no cost. My cost of customer acquisition, I kid you not, for the last 20 years has been around £36 for a £20,000 order. Mm. Why would you not want to make that much profit? Yeah. There was a study done uh, by B2B Decision Labs where they were testing various messaging and, and like what messaging works best in order for us to get access to the decision makers. And one of the things that was interesting about the study that they didn't anticipate is that okay, these are the types of messaging that works. This is the type that doesn't. But out of all of these, if they get an introduction from someone that they trust, which is how most executives start, messaging doesn't even matter. Introductions, referrals, those are the things that will drive executive introductions and reaching those decision makers that all of, all of the sales world is trying to figure out what's the best way for me to get in front of them. And so they spam and that just turns them off. And there is really good reason for this, because when you get referred by someone who is trusted by both sides, yep. they understand the customer's context, they understand your context, and they can make the connection. And that gives certainty to both sides, which lowers the barriers to resistance. Matt Dixon, in his Jolt Effect research, mm -hmm. um, makes a really interesting point. 
that uh, there is that he doesn't state this explicitly, but this is the inference, which is the fourth response to amygdala hijack. There is freeze, flight, and fight, which we're all familiar with. There's mm. a fourth one, which is flocking. When we are under pressure, when we're not happy, when we're uncertain, we tend to look for solace and support with other people who will understand and protect us. Right. Now, if you get dumped, the first thing you do is you phone a friend and you say, meet me down the pub, let's get drunk together. And then you <laughs> whine and complain about how hard done by you are. Right. Well, the same thing goes when buyers aren't sure. And sellers create the conditions almost uh, almost every single time until we understand and accept in 100% of our dissatisfying relationships, the only constant is us. Mm -hmm. um, and most objections are caused by something we did or failed to do. Then the same thing goes with resistance and hesitation and ghosting. What do we have to do to turn up so that we don't trigger that anticipated catastrophizing buyer's remorse in their head thinking, oh my God, it'll all go wrong. I can't trust Carol. To piggyback too on the point that you were making about the introductions is that when we're referred to someone, we, we seek to flock with other people. It's because there's trust there. They're like me. They understand me. They get my world. And so when we are referred to someone like that, that trust is transferred to us in a, in a portion of and so I think that that is the same thing that we need to be able to do here, because if you have asked questions that collaborate with your buyers that are focused on them first, one of the things that drives me crazy is when sellers talk about buying timelines, the question they ask is, when do you want to make the decision by and when do you want to have this implemented by? These are questions that the seller cares about because that's when yeah, they know the bank question. The right. But what their buyers care about is when they're going to see results by. Absolutely. And so when I'm coaching sellers and managers and you're wanting to understand what the timeline is for the decision, start by when they want to see results. Why is that date important? What's the impact of that when they reach it or don't reach it? And then reverse engineer the timeline of how long does it take to make a decision? Who needs to get involved? What's important to them? And then what about implementation? Who do you have on your side to implement that? How long do you think that's going to take? And then looking at, all right, so if we're saying that this is going to take six months to implement and de decide and then implement, but you want to see results in five, how are we going to move through that? Now you have a timeline for urgency, but it comes back to asking the right questions that are buyer focused, not us focused. That's how we build trust, as well as communicating with them in a way that is something they can understand, right? Are we using their language? How are we projecting our, our voice and the, the way that we're speaking to them? Have we taken into account you know, their, their particular role and where they are in their buying process? See, all of these are things that are focused on the other person and not on us when we need the deal by, when we, what size of the deal that we need, what is my manager saying to me? And it's the hardest thing to do as sellers because we have it coming, we have opposite things pulling us in opposite directions, but it's really up to us to do what's right by the buyer. I know you've got your book coming out, Buyer First, Grow Your Sales with Collaborative Selling. Yeah. I'm curious. Is there a chapter in there, and if there isn't, you've still got time, on getting the investors and the leadership in the right place so that they stop making salespeople do things that jar with their value system? And in order to survive or in order to be able to accomplish their objectives, they have to compromise and behave out of their integrity. 
Yeah. How, how do you fix that? Well, that's not an easy answer. It's actually what the second and third book are going to be about. So the first book is really focused on the business owner who has to sell or the salesperson who needs to improve their sales. And because what I see happen in so much sales education is that authors will write for the leadership, right? Thinking that it's going to be like trickle down economics, right? If we start with the leadership, then it's going to trickle down to the rest of the team, but it never happens, right? Or it's the telephone really? game. I thought that worked really, 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 really well. It's done, yeah. it's done our economy no end of good. So oh, no, it crashed. I'm sorry. Yeah. So this is the first book is to really put the tools and the techniques and the research and the strategies in the hands of the people who need it the most right now. And those are the ones that are on the front lines having the conversations with buyers. Because at the end of the day, what we do with ourselves is our decision to make, despite what management might do, despite what leadership might do. But the second book is for managers and how do we create an environment and a, a process and a system for behavioral change in our sellers. And then the third book, which is for leaders, is how do you make these decisions? How do you work with investors to set the right expectations of what's going to happen? How do you hire and set up the systems to create the cultures of diversity and inclusion? And I'll just say this on diversity and inclusion is that buyers are demanding perspectives and insights and looking at their problems in a different way. And if we have the same faces and the same people in the same echo chamber repeating these things to buyers, there's no innovation that's going to be happening there. Let me double down on this because mm -hmm. this is something I'm vehement about. The economic argument that shareholders um, and investors uh, put forward is that Milton Friedman's line that we all serve shareholder value. Mm -hmm. If you genuinely believe that, then you must insist on a diverse workforce because diverse teams tend to come up with much more creative solutions. Yeah. They tend to be able to come up with more elegant solutions that are more sustainable with fewer mm -hmm. negative unintended consequences. And because many eyes went on the problem, you have more buy-in. And then what happens is you have higher levels of engagement. Now, diversity and engagement go hand in hand. And the S&P study from 2010 to 2016 is unequivocal that Companies that have highly engaged employees compared with average to low engagement have 500% annually, 500% uh, higher profits annually, 120% higher revenue per employee annually, 20% higher daily productivity, 40% lower turnover of staff, and wait for it, 316% annual compound share price growth higher than the rest of the S&P 500. Right. So if you really want to make lots of money, stop being assholes. <laughs> well, and so let's look at today's climate, right? In the, in the tech world, how many thousands, tens of thousands of people are getting laid off right now? And you know how those decisions are getting made? A CFO with a spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah, that's how those decisions These companies are washed with cash who are quite happily laying tens of thousands of people off in the midst of the worst recession we have ever faced coming up to Christmas in the midst of a, um, a, uh, an energy crisis and right. hyperinflation. And here's another level of insanity, in case it wasn't insane enough, is that they say, we need to increase our revenue, but we're going to fire all of our revenue generators. Sales teams are wiped out. How are you going to increase revenue? <laughs> we're going to go down the road of PLG because PLG works so well for complex, sophisticated products. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, okay, let, let's just... 
punch a few people on the nose in that case, because I think it's necessary. You've got a blank sheet of paper Mm -hmm. and you can design. In fact, let's start with the opposite. Okay. Describe to me the qualities of a really terrible CRO or sales leader. Oh my, terrible qualities. They make a note of these if you're listening. And if you're doing any of these things, stop. Carry on. (laughs) They manage by the numbers. Uh Meaning everything, like I was describing the, the coaching client that I was working with the other day, every Friday, it's a deep dive into every single opportunity and the numbers that are going on in the pipeline. If you don't develop, what's that again? Weekly ass kicking. Yes, weekly ass kicking. That's number one, is that a leader, a manager, is your your job is to not just manage the numbers. Sales is not just a numbers game. It is a mental game. And if you want to impact revenue, then you need to do is actually coach and develop your people. If you don't develop your people, then you're just going to get keep getting more or worse results than before. The other worst thing, (laughs) that I see is this kind of goes hand in hand is this is how I did it at XYZ company. And so this is how we're going to do it here. And I'm going to take all of my best sellers from XYZ company, and I'm going to bring them here. Two things. Well, more than two things. One is that historical performance somewhere else is not predictive of performance here because it's a different market, different buyer, different offer, different everything, right? Even if it's the same competitor, it is not the same, right? And then number two is when a CRO or a VP of sales, this is what I see happen is that they go into a new role and they spend the first 60 to 90 days trying to figure out what's going on, right? Or I'm going to have conversations with the people on my team. I'm going to figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are from a couple of conversations. You mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect before, where we overestimate our strengths and we underestimate our weaknesses based on the level of experience we have. The psychologists call it Mount Stupid, where you're the least experienced, but the most confident. (laughs) And then then it goes down from there. But there's a flip side to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I see impact leadership, which is when you have successfully learned something, right? And then you have to teach it to others. You have a hard time understanding why it's so difficult for them because it's so easy for you. Just do what I do. Just do it the way I tell you to do it. Or just watch me do it and then learn to do it that way. That's my favorite one. (laughs) Ah, Now, this is really interesting. Are you familiar with Spiral Dynamics? No. Spiral Dynamics is um, the next level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay. So you've got different levels. Um, So you've got a survival level, Mm -hmm. and then you've got a tribal level, then you've got one that's focused on power, on uh, order, and then on winning at any cost, then on people, and then innovation, and then yeah, mission. And the theory is that as you move up the spiral, you elevate, so you can bring with you the uh, what you had at the lower levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can only transcend maybe one level, above you, not two. Two is too much. It's too far for you to see. And part of the problem that you've just described there is that the leaders probably reached a certain level of awareness. And for them to bring everyone else along, it's 12 steps, but they've made the intellectual leap. And that's the difficulty I see with a lot of people who are operators who get put into management, and then they don't really understand how to transfer their skills because do what I do and do what I say is not 
um, helping people to learn. It's telling exactly. people and dictating. Right. Dan and Chip Heath's book, Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. They talk about the rider and the elephant. And what what happens is that these leaders come in as the as the rider and not taking into account the elephant that they're trying to steer. If that elephant doesn't want to move, it's not going to move. And so how do you as a rider and leader make the path clear, make the steps easy for them and, and break it into small chunks to motivate the elephant to just take that first step? And so we talk about servant leadership. Maybe we should be calling it elephant leadership because that is really what we're trying to do. And so for those of you not familiar with the concept, uh, the concept is that you have two systems. You have the automatic system, the unconscious system, which is the elephant. And mm. then you have uh, that system one. And then you have system two, which is the rider. And essentially, a six to eight ton pachyderm goes where the hell it wants, no matter how much you um, tug at it. So your job is to keep the elephant happy. This is the amygdala. Because the amygdala is the, the pathway into their lower brain function, their emotion. Their emotions need to be pumping out happiness and joy, endorphins and uh, dopamine and uh, oxytocin. They don't need adrenaline and cortisol because the moment that stuff goes coursing through their system, then they start becoming really dumb. And a lot of bad salespeople will take advantage of this, but that's why we have very high churn. So yes. all you're doing, you're transferring the problem downstream. And this is why I have a real issue with the uh, division of labor in the sales process. So talk to me about this, because Adam Smith at the end of Wealth of Nations says, don't do division of labor because it's dehumanizing and will not work. But none of the alphas got to the end of the book. So my question is this, what, why what, should we maybe retrench and go back to what used to work better, which is having people who actually have relationships with customers instead of seeing them as uh, organic ATM machines. That is my belief as well. You know, we talked earlier about the importance of referrals and introductions, right? But if you're, if you're, if you say, a B, and, and the handoff between, let's say, business development to account executive to customer success is still atrocious. So we're trying, they're trying to do it, but it's not working well. And so what I see also happening is that when a account executive is not getting enough leads that are coming in or not enough appointments that are booked for them, they, they don't have any way other than cold calling and cold email and spamming to get in front of people because they're not allowed to talk to their customers again. And what I coach my sellers to do, whether their company likes it or not, is that if you as a seller have made a promise that this is going to work for you, wouldn't you want to know if it actually worked out? Wouldn't you want to actually know that your promise was fulfilled? And so what I do is teach them a cadence of keeping in touch with their customers every month, every quarter, every six months. Don't just call them when it's time for renewal. Don't just call them when it's time for an upsell or a cross-sell, but keep a regular cadence and contact with them to keep a finger on the pulse of what's going on with them. And that not only helps you to establish the relationship and the trust, but when opportunities do come up, for an upsell or a cross-sell or maybe a danger of churn, they already know that that's going to happen and, and can address that. But it's also an opportunity for innovation. As you had mentioned before, you know, if customers are using the product in a way that they had never seen before, if that relationship is between the original seller and customer, they can take that and feed it back to product development or customer success or support. So I completely believe that if you've done the work to establish a trusting relationship, you know, it's it's kind of like the, 
Thank you very much. Slam, bam. Thank you, ma'am. I got what I needed and now I'm moving on. Another notch in the bedpost. Or are we actually going to have a meaningful relationship here where we continue to stay in touch? That is how I think sales needs to go back to that because you're right, this division of labor, it's the handoff is not happening well. I was just, I did a live stream yesterday with one of my colleagues who I referred to two people. And she said, I, I don't know why they bothered to introduce me to the business development person who asked me a bunch of questions because I had to redo it all again. Every time I talked to someone new, it's like they didn't talk to each other. It's not working. It didn't. <laughs> so, but again, I see this happening time and time and time again. And this therefore represents a spectacularly great opportunity because recession, this is my fifth, and recession, experience has taught me, recession is a blessing if you can stay calm. Yes. And you show up and you stay focused on the medium-term pipeline and building those long-term relationships with people and staying in contact. And if you're an SDR and your company says you can't maintain contact, You've got LinkedIn connections. You probably can get them onto WhatsApp or on Slack and have private back channel. And if you're in one of my clients, don't do this without your manager's permission. If you're anywhere else, do it because you own that relationship and yeah. you need to maintain that relationship with those people because they could be a great referral source. But that side of the rant over, if we look at this as the, for the upside, if you were advising somebody who could stay calm while everyone else started panicking, what advice would you give them to thrive in the next two years? For a seller to thrive in the next two years is to first stay in contact with your contacts, right? This is what, how, what's happening in your world. How are things shaking out? You know, what are you thinking about this particular thing? Because we don't know what the future is going to hold. And so keeping a close relation with your network and with your contacts in a meaningful way, without selling something, without pitching something, that's going to have invaluable, it's, it's just invaluable, both now recession-wise and any other time. The other thing that I would say, if you can stay calm and confident in this, is to really dig into what are the compelling reasons for people to make a change happen. We talk about the compelling reason to buy, but we also need to look at what is the compelling reason for them to make a decision to begin with. Dig into the idea of how do I sell on the, uh, their, or how do I qualify on their ability to make a decision and willingness to make a decision and not just their decision to buy? If we start there and ask the questions that help us to uncover that, we'll spend less time with people who aren't ready to decide and more time with people who have a process to decide and a reason to make the decision. And then you can help them with the best decision that's for them. And I think the third thing that I would say is get really clear on who your ideal buyers are. And I don't mean just create a buyer persona profile that you put on the shelf and never look at again, but I mean, really dig into how do they become aware of the situation or the problems that they have? How can I add value there? And then what are the triggers or what are the events that happen in that sort of problem profile of once they become aware of the problem, what are the events that happen after that, that make them aware that it's something that they need to do now? How can I add value there? And the last thing I think in that is we talk about collaborative selling. We talk about putting your buyer first in all of these things, but there is going to come a point where you need to be able to offer to your buyers 
an insight or a data point or something that they hadn't considered or known about their particular problem. So for example, I helped sales teams scale by hiring the right fit hires for them to begin with using science and data. One of the things that most people don't realize though is that uh, when you make a bad hiring decision, the cost of that failed sales hire is anywhere from six to 10 times what their base salary is. And that for companies who are trying to grow and scale, it will cost them a round of funding. And this is something investors overlook. They just think, let's we're gonna hire 10 to 15 people, maybe five of them will work out. The only thing it's really cost us is some base salary because we're just gonna be paying them mostly commission. But what they don't take into account is churn, the market, the culture, the cost of lost opportunities, and so being able to get your buyers to think differently about the problems that they're facing, that is the thing that they are going to value the most. And you can't do that if you're not actively listening in the present moment with them. So in all of these tactics, I would say keep in touch with your connections and continue to develop your own ability for resilience and to take care of yourself because it's in that self-care and managing that stress that you're going to stay calm to be able to execute on these things. So Around Resilience, there's a fabulous book. I can't quite remember the name by a guy called Paul Stoltz. And he came up with this fabulous framework, which I've stolen for pain discovery, called CORE. And it's control, ownership, reach, and endurance. And it was a model to help people manage adversity and stress so that they became more resilient. So what is it they need to control, want to control, can't control? What do they own? What are they responsible for, able to respond to? Mm -hmm. uh, what's the ripple effect if they do a good job, a bad job? What's their tolerance? How long have they put up with it? How much longer are they willing to put up with it? But to build on your point, I've put together a calculator for the cost of an, a bad enterprise hire, and that is anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary mm -hmm. because you could lose a customer for three, five, 10 years if it's big plant and machinery or a big outsourcing contract, and it could cost you a fortune. So let's deal with this other issue. We looked at what bad looked like. Let's have a look at what great looks like. What's now the new salesperson? If you were, again, to design the ideal salesperson that's fit for purpose for this new marketplace. They would. So we, we talked about the six sales-specific mindsets before. And that is the greatest indicator of future success is how well you have managed or mastered these mindsets. So, uh, you know, have you become aware of and replaced unsupportive thoughts? Because it's not just enough to be aware of them and stop thinking them. It's like anything. If you want to quit smoking, you need to replace it with another vice. For me, it was black coffee. And so making sure that you have those supportive beliefs, making sure that you can understand and manage your need for approval, your emotions, your, uh, your comfort discussing money, these are all daily things that you can work on over a period of time. The other thing that I would say about the modern seller today is once they have mastered those mindsets, that is what is going to then enable them to be true active listeners who can ask collaborative value-add questions with their buyers. And that is going, you know, that is something that they master from discovery to qualification to closing and all around back again. It's important in every stage of the process. And then I think that the other thing is, is that they have a mindset of not about me. The seller today is the one that can say no to their customer because it's not the best decision or fit for them and make that their core value sort of proposition is that 
We're going to help you to decide what's best for you, not convince you that we're the right fit if we're not the right fit. Now, what this takes is it is it takes resilience, it takes grit, it takes a growth mindset. It also takes a supportive system. It takes uh, understanding what your own personally meaningful goals and purpose is and aligning how you sell to that, but also having a support network that is constantly giving you feedback and helping you to continue to improve. We all need that as individual sellers, especially as business owners. This is what I see as the modern buyer first seller. And I think that it will transform the perception of sales wholeheartedly endorse everything that you've said and I will build on it because one of the things that baffles me is as sellers and God knows I've been guilty of it for the first few years at least of teaching people stuff because we teach them technique and we teach them tactics what we didn't really teach them was why those techniques worked and in what context Mm -hmm. now we teach people to ask questions but we teach them to ask really bad questions and a lot of really bad questions. <laughs> really bad questions and bant questions. Bant's brilliant oh. internally. It's awful if you're on the receiving end as a customer. So what we don't teach them is how to ask really good, challenging, provocative, thought-provoking, targeted, insightful questions that uh, help the customer advance their thinking. And remember, if you're in front of a buyer, their time is precious. If they're running 100 million PL, their time is worth $50,083 an hour. Mm-hmm. You better turn up and deliver some value. You've got to be prepared. So that means you need to be prepared for your, the answers to the questions that they will ask you. We've been taught don't answer questions. And I think it's terrible advice. If you've got good answers that have been well prepared, and let's face it, None of us have ever been asked an original question by a prospect uh, after our 30th meeting. They've never asked us or hit us with an original objection, and they've never asked us for an original bit of information. So every single one of those can be prepared for. Yep. So we can prepare for having bloody good answers. We can have bloody good questions. And what we should be really good at is listening and then being situationally aware recognizing the impact we have and what we project out, we get reflected back. And I think those four pillars are just not taught. Um, And the the psychology of why these techniques matter and why they work is overlooked. And so what's happened is we've taught people uh, to use tactics and technique and use this selling system, which is absolutely doing the opposite of what you and I have been talking about, and you're doing it to them. Yes. How do we start? I think, so number one, this is my other big pet peeve. Like we talked about CROs and the worst things that they can do. Well, here's the best thing that you can do as a CRO is one, use objective data to screen and hire your salespeople so that you're getting the right fits for the right role in your company, right? Not just, oh, well, he sold a million dollars at this company. He can do it here too. Uh-uh. The other thing is, is not just in how you hire, but this is the most overlooked and under underused opportunity is how you onboard those new hires. What you teach is what they will preach. And how do most onboarding programs start? Product, price, process, CRM system. It's all about us. It's all the internal things that are important to us. And then they're surprised when their sellers get on the phone and demo and pitch slap everybody because that's what they were taught. Instead, start with a deep dive into who the buyers are, 
And what we were talking about before in the persona work of it, have the research of what's going on in their industry. What are their role responsibilities? Who do they report to? How are they measured? How do they become aware of the problems? Where do they go for information? Get into the buyer's world first with your new sellers. And that is what they will do with your buyers to create that experience. And then after you have established that firm understanding, then bring in how do your solutions help to achieve, help your buyer to achieve these things. Don't start with product first because that's easy and that's what everybody cares about. If they don't know the product, then how are they going to be able to demo it? I could probably, with just a good couple of key questions and understanding of your buyer, be able to at least set a meeting and a discovery, no matter what your product is. In fact, if anybody wants to challenge me to it, I will take you up on it because it is not about what you know. It is about the questions that you ask and the value that you can bring into that perspective. What she said, just pay attention. <laughs> just do what Carol said. Carol, sadly, we've come to the top of the hour. I could talk to you for hours. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Carol, age 23. <laughs> what would you whisper in her ear that you know she'd have probably been far too much master of the universe and know all to have ever paid any attention, but would have benefited from it? If I could go back and whisper in my 23-year-old self's ear, I would say the scariest thing is the status quo. Love that. Okay. Best mistake? Best mistake I had was marrying young and having kids young. <laughs> okay. Final question then. What mistake do you see most organizations making when they're commissioning training? And why is it training consistently fails to deliver the result? The most consistent mistake that I see is training is treated as a one-off event or reaction to a poor pipeline. And it is not a systematic process within the company that happens continuously. It's looked at as a Band-Aid to stop the bleeding, but it is actually, again, an instance of where they're creating the problems that they're trying to solve for. For example, I had a company that I worked with implement the Challenger sale. Unfortunately, because their salespeople didn't have the proper mindsets and coaching to actually execute it in the way that it was intended, all that happened is they came off as assholes to their buyers because I've got to challenge them. <laughs> Absolutely. This points to another really important quality that you have to look for, which is that the reps you're looking for believe that they own their own learning. They're responsible yeah. for that. They're not waiting to be trained, i.e. done to. This is something they're proactive about and they ask for help. The best reps that I know, the best managers that I know, the best leaders that I know all have multiple coaches. They have the humility, the intellectual humility to know that they don't know best. Right. And that's why I still do, you know, my, my business, I work with corporations, I work with startups, but it's also why I still do one-to-one -one coaching of individuals who will come to me mostly by referral because of that very reason, that if you're willing to invest, you know, eight to $10,000 in yourself to hire a coach, then I want to see what you're capable of because I know that you're capable of something bigger than whatever it is that you're doing now. Those are my favorite people to work with. They make my job easy. They make me look good because they're willing to do whatever it takes ethically to improve. And I've also found that the ones that are most likely to do it are the ones that are in intrinsically motivated. 
They're motivated by either being the best or being the best for someone or mastering a skill so that they can carry it into other places. The ones that are motivated by money, they're just going to chase after the next hack or trick or, you know, quick fix type of a deal. Those are the, I, it's honestly why I got into doing what I do. Completely understand. Carol, how can people get hold of you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm there on a regular basis, but you could also go to my website at unboundgrowth.com. We're also going to be launching soon another website for my keynote speaking and also to learn more about the book. And that will be at carolmahoney.com. Carol with an E at the end, by the way. The correct spelling. The correct English proper spelling. <laughs> Excellent. Carol Mahoney, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this enjoyable and uh, you'd like to uh, get in touch, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, comment, uh, get in touch with Carol, with me. Um, or you can get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And I'm taking on a handful of coaches this quarter and I'm building my waiting list for uh, Q1 next year. I'm taking only private coaching clients. And I'm significantly more expensive. Uh, so you probably want to go to someone else first. But I promise you, I will kick your ass and give you absolutely no quarter and it will not be a pleasant experience. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.